0: Welcome back to Altered States of Context, a podcast about psychedelics, science, and psychotherapy. As I'm recording this intro, the podcast has gone live. And I want to thank everybody for the overwhelming and positive response we've gotten to the show so far. Uh, We're very much enjoying your feedback and hoping to continue to produce the show. So let us know what you'd like to hear, what questions you have. And you know, any other things you'd like to hear us talk about. If you're really enjoying the show, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, and sharing us on social media. Um, That'll help us get a wider audience and continue to have fun making this. Today we'll be presenting an interview with Dr. Gregory Wells, he him, queer. He's a licensed psychologist based in San Francisco. He's a clinician and researcher in the field of psychedelic medicine and a supporter of cognitive liberty and decriminalization. He obtained his doctorate degree from the University of Texas, Austin, and also holds a postdoc degree in clinical pharmacology, psychopharmacology. He currently works as the principal investigator and therapist in the MAPS-sponsored Phase 3 clinical trial of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy to treat PTSD. He was one of the founding members of Polaris Insight Center, a cutting-edge ketamine-assisted psychotherapy clinic in San Francisco where he served as CEO and CFO. Gregory has a long-standing interest in and deep respect for plant medicines, entheogens, and indigenous wisdom and healing practices. He's eternally grateful for the lineage of elders, ancestors, healers, and teachers who came before him, who taught him, and who make his work possible. Here is Dr. Gregory Wells. We hope you enjoy the show. I wanted to ask a question because it was, you know, it's kind of what spurred my brain a minute ago. To be like, well, let's just start recording because we we're talking about mental health crisis. So <laughs> you hear this a lot, like this is a refrain, mental health crisis, like that phrase, you know, and I think um, I hear that and I don't know what the heck it's supposed to mean exactly. I know, like, I guess the increase in <laughs> mental health diagnoses, but from my point of view, it's <laughs> sort of been evident my whole life that you look around and you see evidence of, um, a culture ill at ease since I've been alive. So, talking about a mental health crisis today kind of strikes me as like okay. <laughs> seems this seems like par for the course, but but I do think maybe it's referring to like an increase in mental health diagnoses, perhaps. But the question specifically I have for you, Gregory, is how do how can psychedelics, in particular MDMA. Help with this so-called mental health crisis, mental health crisis that we are entering into.
1: Yeah, good question. I think you know my first response is, well, we we just don't know yet. We're still so early in the research, and the focus of the the current MDMA research has really been on PTSD. I think they're absolutely going to be you know frontline workers, whether medical professionals or. You know, other frontline workers over the past year and a half, you know, with with COVID, who are probably going to qualify for diagnoses of, of PTSD. So, once MDMA is legally available, those people might have some some access to treatment. You know, the the unfortunate reality is is even once it's approved, it's still I think going to be a, a rather long sort of rollout of this this medicine because unlike most newly approved drugs this drug is is attached to therapy it's not drug alone so you know prozac is released or lexapro or whatever it immediately floods the market and with mdma we're still training or needing to train you know thousands of therapists to really effectively roll this out
0: is there is there sorry to interrupt but is there a comp for this like or is this kind of like there's sort of an unprecedented sort of like uh, relationship yeah. here between doing therapy with like it's usually there've been separate therapies, its thing, uh, medications, this thing. So so is there a comp or is this sort of like completely new territory? As far as I'm aware, this is completely new territory.
1: And you know, the FDA has never regulated therapy. And the, the FDA is not regulating the therapy component in this case either. So while the the maps protocol uh, indicates of uh, what we call, you know, non-directed, you can think of it as client-centered approach to the therapy, remains to be seen how that's going to, what that's actually going to look like once it hits the market. Will everyone adhere to, you know, the MAPS protocol? We've, you know, we've certainly, you know, in our discussions, we've talked about ACT and, you know, that that approach combined with NDMA. But, you know, there's internal family systems therapy is getting a lot of attention in relation to to psychedelic therapy cbt you know dbt I think they probably all have their utility and will likely work but you know we don't know yet so this has really never been done before like this
2: gregory could you and it will, will it be oh go ahead brian i was going to ask gregory could you explain a bit about the therapeutic approach that maps uses i think for a lot of therapists they read the articles about the trials and they don't say so much about what the therapists are actually doing so could you speak a bit about like what is the therapeutic orientation and what are the therapists trained to do
1: yeah i mean it's interesting this question does come up and you're right you know there's not a lot of specific language around what it looks like I think part of that is due to the fact that it is, um, it is this, you know, non-directed approach and the therapists in the, currently in the trial, you know, some, some are MDs, some are psychiatrists, not all, many of us are therapists, but not everyone came into the trial with, you know, as, as a, a therapist per se. So we come from a range of theoretical orientations and clinical backgrounds. And you know, some people bring psychoanalytic expertise and some contextual behavioral and you know some you know some psychiatrists, as we know, many psychiatrists don't get much training and actually doing therapy in their their medical school training. So, you know, there is no one specific approach and in the the Uh, MAPS MDMA therapist training program, you know, we are are taught to to really follow the client um, or the participant in this case. And, you know, it's been interesting for for some therapists who come in with a lot of, you know, years of experience and, and skills. It's hard to put down your, you know, your toolkit of tried and true interventions and really sit there and kind of do nothing as it were but that's not really true um but to really just follow the client and to it's not about intervening you know sure we're we're offering comments and, and and support it's really more about being a supportive empathic presence as the client is having their unfolding process in the sessions now in the integration work sure you know there's a lot more opportunity to do you know, interventions and those can come from a, a range of the, the whole range of really theoretical orientations and trans theoretical orientations. But in the MDMA sessions themselves, it's really about being very present moment to moment and following what's unfolding for the client without needing to or trying to intervene or or analyze, but yeah. So it's a, it's a real
0: exercise and
1: mindful presence and awareness.
0: Would it be safe to describe it as sort of providing a, like your, your job is to sort of provide an environment and a sense of safety to the participant. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, I'm glad you brought that up. We
1: spend a lot of time in the preparation sessions talking about, you know, this gets back to set and setting and really providing a very safe environment for the participant to to engage in this sort of exploration. So there's a lot of talk around, you know, safety. We're keeping them safe, reminding them that they're safe and um, encouraging curiosity. I'd say that's the other major, you know, sort of component to this is encouraging the, the the participant to remain curious about their experience as it's, again, un- unfolding. Mm-hmm.
0: It definitely strikes me that with that safety or that sort of safe foundation, it reminds me sort of like, thinking about like attachment, you know, and like secure attachment, like a feeling of safety. Well, then, like if you go back to like very young children, you know, have the sense of safety, then they can... Uh, explore from that place right like you kind of have their you know kind of safe sense with mom I'm, I'm securely attached there things are okay and i'm going to go out and explore the world a little bit and peek and, and maybe even take risks which you know i think i don't think anybody would argue that psych- um, psychedelic work isn't at some level psychologically risky but and i think those risks can be extraordinarily beneficial. Um, but sort of providing that sort of safe groundwork from which to explore, be curious, and take those risks seems like to me, a lot of the work of, you know, what you know holding that space would be.
1: Absolutely. And as someone who comes from, you know, a, a background in attachment theory and attachment work, this work, you know, doing this work to me is um is absolutely rooted in, in that and I, you know, I admit my bias up front, but it's absolutely rooted in, in that sort of work. And so many of the participants come in with histories of developmental trauma, and so you know maybe they don't have, you know, secure attachments, or maybe they never experienced a you know secure base. Um, you know, we don't, we're not assessing for attachment, you know, style in the the study, but it would be fascinating certainly. Um, but yeah, so the therapists you know, both of the therapists in the room are serving as that secure base. And unlike in traditional therapy, you know, traditional psychotherapy, this work tends to also be much more kind of intimately relational in that there's, you know, there's opportunities for physical touch where we're with them for eight hours a day at a time in, in these, these sessions. And so often sitting very close to them or, or holding their hand or, you know, putting a, a hand on their shoulder to there was, you know, communicate support in ways that we typically don't do many people in, in traditional psychotherapy. So I think participants often do experience us as that kind of secure base. And then when they've got the eye shades on, they've got the headphones on and they're, they're going inward to engage in this exploration. It's like you said, it's, you know, that, that child, using the secure base to go out and explore the world, in this case, go inside and explore the world and feel supported and and comforted and and safe.
2: Going along with what you described in terms of following the client, um, a big part of MAPS work um, that I I know of since I'm actually just starting MAPS, the, the training, I'm in the second week. And yeah, I've noticed a lot of the folks in my in my cohort are not not all the therapists. They're coming from a variety of backgrounds, which is which is really cool. But there's this, this emphasis on this construct of inner healing intelligence. It's not a construct you find in a lot of psychotherapy traditions, at least ones that I'm familiar with. I'm wondering if you could explain that what that means and how that sort of maps onto your prior training as a therapist? Like, are there other concepts uh, or interventions or conceptualizations that, that sort of relate to that for folks who are, who are tr- just learning that uh, for the first time?
1: Yeah, it, it, people do struggle with that concept, particularly participants, you know, and one of the things I explained explain to people is, you know, as we're introducing them to that concept and that language that people may not have a real understanding of what that means and for people who have experienced trauma they've often become disconnected or lost trust in their own you know agency their own their inner healing intelligence their ability to heal and the metaphor that's that's used and often in the the therapy manual is that much like the the physical body knows how to heal itself if you get a cut or you break a bone, the body heals itself. And you know a physician may set the bone or may suture the skin, but the body does the healing. And Western medicine in many ways kind of supports that process or other types of medicine, not just Western, certainly Ayurvedic medicine. Um, but So in the same way, when trauma, if you think of it as a, a psychic wound, the psyche knows how to heal itself as well things often get in the way of that. And so this, this therapy is very much about supporting the person's ability to, to heal themselves. And I think that's been one of the fascinating things about psychedelics, you know, going back to the research that was done in the, in the 50s and 60s, and also what we know from the you know indigenous wisdom traditions that the ways that, you know, in the shamanic traditions, the ways that shamans support people really you know, the person is, is healing themselves. The, you know, many shamans talking about sort of being a vessel for that healing to kind of flow through them. But this is really, I think about empowering participants or, or clients to do their own healing. And yeah, I, I find that incredibly empowering for people and removing us as the sort of the experts who are doing something to the participant or the client to to activate the healing. And you're right. I don't necessarily find that in a lot of traditions or approaches in, in psychotherapy. I mean, I think it's it's fairly Rogerian in its approach um, in that client-centered way. And before I even began this work, I guess that's, that's kind of always been my approach. And my thought has always been that the, the client is always the expert in their lives. And you know, I'm coming in to, to help them on a path of, of healing and to support them and perhaps hopefully occasionally ask the right questions, but I'm not the expert in their, their lives. Mm-hmm.
2: I could see that being really empowering, especially for folks with trauma as they often have you know, very negative beliefs about themselves as being broken or damaged. So yeah. for them to walk away with a sense that there's something internal that can be healing and if we set up the conditions in the right way, we can um, accelerate that process or, or jumpstart that process that, that would be really life-changing for some people.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and in, in particular for people with developmental trauma who experience their their caregivers as you know perpetrators, abusers, to learn you know so much of that abuse is about you know breaking that belief or trust in oneself, and so to to help a person regain a sense of that is yeah life changing for people.
0: I think there's a, like an interesting. Kind of side conversation here, especially since I imagine a lot of our audience will be uh, therapists and you know have an interest in counseling, psychology, therapy. Generally, it seems to me you you say things like inner healer. You know, the psyche knows. Talking about healing the, themselves, which I think is ubiquitous terminology in psychedelic medicine, because it seems like when you're just looking, it seems clearly like what's happening. It's not like you're doing anything. It's you're setting the space for this and allowing, you know, for that to happen on its own, um, which in general, to me, seems like a notion that there's good language for uh, in basically humanistic therapies generally, you know, like Rogerian, like you mentioned, but I think the humanistic sort of school of uh, therapeutic approaches sort of in general talk this way like this is the sort of language that is often used and it is not the language of most evidence-based therapies you know and i think that that's been early in my career for sure i was attracted to humanistic therapies because you know i came from a psychedelic perspective and i and i saw sort of these evidence-based perspectives when i was kind of looking at my various paths forward and they seemed like um and i think a lot of it was a misperception on my part but i think there is some truth to it um you know they missed this language for me, that was a big part of what brought me into ACT, because I feel like ACT provides a really nice bridge between sort of an evidence-based approach, but also really uh, able to adopt and incorporate a human a perspective that I'm referring to as humanistic, um, that we could refer to as maybe psychedelic. And I wonder if you had any, just any thoughts on that sort of like the different therapeutic approaches and, and how the, their language fits or doesn't fit uh, with psychedelic experiencing.
1: Yeah, it's, it's an excellent point, Nate, in that as I'm listening, as I was listening to you say that, I was finding myself yeah, hopeful that as MDMA therapy is is rolled out, that it you know, further becomes a bridge between these two, what have seemed at times, you know, sort of disparate approaches. Yeah, I went to graduate school in the early 90s, which was sort of the heyday of evidence-based approaches. It was all about CBT and you know, these manualized approaches. And, you know, I'm thankful that I also had, you know, a lot of training in psychodynamic therapy and fresh out of graduate school, being very much, you know, evidence-based kind of approaches. And now kind of all these years later, coming back to from this more humanistic approach. And... Like you said, I think that the psychedelic work had always been from that approach and incorporating that language and, and valuing that. So I hope that you know our fields, whether you know psychology or you know counseling or social work, whatever it might be, can all move in, in that direction and and really value these approaches more, which which yeah do put the client at the center rather than the the interventions at the center. Mm.
2: I think there's you know, obviously so much, as you said, we're just starting to scratch the surface with the potential of this therapy-medicine interaction. Um, there's so many different ways I, I could imagine the therapy going, especially for different purposes, different diagnoses. I'm curious... Given that you've been involved in doing this work, where where do you see the therapy evolving to? Or what are, you know, what are the next five years of studies going to look like? What are they gonna be the first adaptations we might see based on what what we know works pretty well already?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> so I think the I think the first five years, a lot of that's going to be, okay, what other indications is this good for? And, you know, once once we get through phase three. You know, one of the, the major points of focus is, is going to be a, a pediatric study. So what does this look like in say older adolescents and, and teens? Which I think opens up really fascinating possibilities in terms of family therapy when we're looking at the, the family system. Um, certainly depression. I think you know, my, my hunch is yeah, MDMA could be a you know fantastic treatment for depression. Yeah, I don't know, other anxiety disorders. If we think of you know PTSD as ultimately an anxiety disorder, yeah, you know, what does that mean for other anxiety disorders? So, and then beyond specific diagnoses, you know, I hope yeah that we, we do get a chance to um, experiment and see what other approaches. What, what does it look like if you combine say MDMA with EMDR? You know, we we certainly. I'll say no. I think we, we feel strongly MDMR is a very supportive or adjunctive therapy for people who are going through MDMA therapy. And for many participants who exit the study, they go on to do MDMR, MD, EMDR to, to continue that process. So, and then combining with, with other things, you know, as a I think a fascinating research question: what, what would it look like to combine MDMA and, say, ketamine, and you know, a single treatment? You know, a person. You know, ketamine, as we we already know, really um, encourages a person to go into this like, you know, deep transpersonal space. And so, you know, either the same day as a person has done MDMA, or you know, maybe in the following day or days what would it look like to, to combine those two and in an innovative treatment approach that's cert- certainly something that's never been done uh, at least in a clinical you know, research setting
2: right I mean that's part of psychedelic communities though I mean people have combining psychedelics for for decades or or you know for I mean that's people will talk about the, flipping hippie flipping yeah hippie flipping right. Right. Uh <laughs> there's you know tons of names for these for these combinations that people will specifically use intentionally because of their their synergistic effect like i know people who will use psilocybin and mdma together they really like that and they feel like that helps them get to the therapeutic space that's most beneficial
1: right and and speaking of you know i really like to see you know there, I, th- I think there's often a, a knee jerk response particularly from the medical profession to just categorically dismiss, um, you know, let's say you know Reddit or Blue Light, where people are sharing their trip reports, and uh, you know, and I think there's actually a lot of wisdom and knowledge to be gained there. So both from say the recreational community as well as the underground community, and the need to, to build bridges there. Okay, what can we learn from people who you know, are their own experimenters and Um, You know, it's not like this is a a new phenomenon. This has been going on for, you know, as long as these substances have existed. So there's quite a body of knowledge there that I I think, you know, academia and medicine can learn from. And and there's a little bit of that, but there could be a lot more.
0: The Altered States of Context podcast strongly endorses that statement. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Very strongly strongly agree. Very strongly agree (laughs) with that. Very strongly agree. You know, as we're talking here, I'm recognizing, and I kind of want to maybe slightly switch gears because we haven't, on our podcast, spoken much about MDMA. We've spent a lot of time on psilocybin, LSD, classical psychedelics. Um, But I would like to, while we have the opportunity here, talk more specifically about MDMA because it is uh, unique. It's distinct from the classical psychedelics in a lot of important ways. Um, And therapeutically, you know, it's... Mm -hmm kind of the star of the show right now, you know, along with psilocybin, like you, you were getting studies from from these two compounds in particularly. Um, they're getting a lot of attention. So I wonder if you can tell us a bit what makes MDMA distinct and what makes it, a, a sp- from your point of view and in your experience, a particularly useful tool? So
1: yeah, it, it does get lumped in with psychedelics when we talk about psychedelic assisted therapy and yet at the same time it's not as you said one of the classic psychedelics it's not associated typically with i'll say you know hallucinations or, or highly altered states of consciousness or non-ordinary states in the way that you know higher dose lsd or higher dose psilocybin might be what some listeners may not know is it's, it's though it's very closely related to mescaline and you know it's in the class called phenethylamines, and so while it doesn't, it doesn't really alter vision per se, or you know, maybe slight alterations in, in sound, and that the music sounds better, but not in the same way that say listening to, to music on LSD or you know, psilocybin might might happen. But the unique thing about MDMA is that it does put a person in this expanded state. And for people who come in with a lot of anxiety, pe- people who come into the study, let's say, who are very drug naive, and we've got you know, people who are often come from very conservative backgrounds, and this is the very first time they've been exposed to anything. A lot of the participants have never smoked marijuana, and you know, maybe they drink some. So for a lot of them, they experience it as it feels safe because they are still in control. And to go back to what we talked about earlier in the preparation sessions and, and helping people feel safe, that is one of the things that we discuss with them is that, you know, they're, they're always in, in control with the, the medicine. So they, they remain in the driver's seat. The medicine isn't so powerful that it's, you know, taking away their their ability to be present. And so, you know, we tell them at any time they can take the eye shades off and the headphones and they're going to be right there present in the room with us. So I think that is unique um, compared to some of the other, certainly the stronger psychedelics is that, you know, people can take a, a dose that is high enough to, to result in a therapeutic effect and yet still be present and in control and, not see dragons or you know, not not go into you know hell realms that are sometimes associated with with other psychedelics. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's also unique in that you know it affects not only serotonin but dopamine and oxytocin and norepinephrine in the brain. And so it really does open up these um, heightened states of empathy and most important I think for self compa- for PTSD is self-compassion um, people are able to really feel compassion for themselves for all the parts of themselves to use the I- ifs language and and to you know, ultimately forgive themselves for whatever they're whatever they've been carrying and whatever they're they're bringing in mm-hmm. and because MDma has this, you know, empathogenic effects, it's great for, again, really encouraging that relationship and that bonding and that attachment with the therapy team. So it kind of, you know, kind of hits a lot of important points for a successful therapy. Mm hmm.
2: It seems to me that MDMA is more of a predictable experience as opposed to psilocybin is a bit more of a wild card. You're not sure what you're going to get. And I think, you know, for folks with trauma, being able to to kind of inform them and have a maybe narrower range of experiences is probably I could see that being, you know, uh, easier to tolerate for, for somebody with, with a trauma history where, you know, losing control is, is absolutely terrifying and is associated with being hurt or, or traumatized in some way. Right.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I think that that does make it more palatable per se for people knowing that they're, yeah, they're not going to lose control, Mm um, you know, and at the same time, it the therapy is not always, you know, rainbows and unicorns and, mm-hmm. you know, easy for mm. people. It's quite hard for people, and, you know. More than one participant has said, you know, I don't know why they call this ecstasy. Because, you know, it is not a, you know, it's certainly tolerable, but it's not necessarily a pleasurable experience for people, you know, and the kind of the recreational literature we people often associate doing MDMA or ecstasy or Molly with, with pleasure and and fun and, you know, being social and it's quite different in this therapeutic context. So, you know, the same, it's interesting that the same, the same neurochemical processes are going on in the brain, but it's a very different experiential thing for for the participants
0: do you still see those experiences show up sometimes
1: yeah you know and i i I always try to you know then the preparation encourage participants to yes we're it's it's about work and and yes we're here for healing and that is always some work but it's also okay to have fun. So if, you know, something fun is showing up for you, don't push that aside. Just like, you know, we tell them, don't push anything aside, you know, do your best to to welcome it all. Don't avoid the hard stuff, but also, you know, don't avoid the, the good stuff or the fun stuff. And so occasionally there will be a participant who does connect with that, who, you know, let's say, wants to, you know, laugh and, and have good times with the therapist in the room or or even occasionally wants to get up and dance. Um, so, you know, we, we certainly allow that and, and encourage that. And it is wonderful to see because, yeah, these people are often engaging in, you know, very challenging work. And for some of them, you know, we are witness to so much of the pain and suffering that they bring in. And so it's really beautiful when you can see a more playful side of them that might be opened up by the medicine.
0: It really strikes me the way you describe you know MDMA as um, affording a sense of control you know, because that, that, I mean, that, that strikes me as such a profound difference. Cause you know, to me, the, the, one of the signature experiences of uh, a higher dose classical psychedelic such as LSD or psilocybin is like, you are not in control. Like, like, forget it. Like stop trying, don't even try because the trying is creates friction and, and difficulty. So it's, it's almost a, a, an opposite approach. Like, it's like, you're not in control. So don't try versus like, you're still in control. Um, sort of like that, you know, going back to that conversation at the beginning about safety and about security attachment you are safe you know and you can go into this if you choose because you're in control you know Um, and that seems like a really really big big difference uh, therapeutically between those two types of substance
1: yeah absolutely you know and as someone who's been there yeah it's it can be terrifying to to lose control Mm -hmm. and to you know working with say psilocybin or, or other classical psychedelics you know, and preparing people and to to encourage them to let go of control. That's a very hard concept for, for many people um, to, to willingly do that. So it's interesting. I think we can hypothesize that for, for people with PTSD, where so much of their experience around that is like abs- having absolutely no control. And so... To, to be able to give them this experience, this therapeutic experience where they are in control and they they do experience more control in the sense that, you know, they're able to revisit traumatic memories and and go really go deeply into those without feeling overwhelmed in the way that they are, let's say, when they're you know triggered and day-to-day.
0: they're doing it and they're doing it by choice. It sounds like. Oh, oh yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that to me seems profoundly important. Like they're, you know, they're, they're revisiting these by choice, not because they are forced to, or they're being thrust on them that they have, because they have a degree of control or agency, they're choosing to engage in that. And the act of choosing, that seems really powerful to me. Right. Absolutely.
1: And, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see if any of the other, you know, sort of the classic psychedelics um, prove to be effective for, for PTSD, I don't know. There does seem to be certainly some evidence, and this is not from you know clinical research trials that you know ketamine can be helpful in addressing PTSD. But I don't think necessarily to the degree that MDMA is
2: is proving to be helpful. I'm curious about the role of music in uh, this, this therapy, you know, it's participants wear eye shades and they have headphones on. And I, I'm curious, you know, what, how, how have you noticed participants interacting with the music? What, what kind of role does the music play in their experience? How do they talk about the music or is it just kind of background noise and it's not, it's not all that important. I'm just curious to hear about that.
1: Yeah, you know it's fascinating. It varies from participant to participant. Some are, are very into the music, and some give us feedback. You know, I, I, I like this, I hate that. You know, can we pick that or can we turn the music off for a while? And and some you know kind of never mention it. So the music is vitally important, and you know when we look at again, going back to the indigenous traditions, you know, music is a part of every peyote ceremony. Music is a part of every ayahuasca ceremony. Music is a part of every iboga ceremony. So music, I mean, music itself is medicine. And, you know, whether it's the bass or whatever it is, whatever it is, it's, it's a... It's a a vehicle for people to to travel. And we know even with with drumming, you know, people can enter into not ordinary states of consciousness without ever ingesting anything. So it's kind of like you have, you know, two medicines at work in the session. What I tell participants is that, you know, the music is really there as a as a an additional support. So the medicine is supporting the person on their journey. The therapists are supporting the person and the music is supporting the person and the music really shouldn't be the, the focal point. So, you know, they wear the headphones to, to block out, you know, external um, noises, but it's not so loud that, you know, they're like at a concert or at a rave. <laughs> so we want the music to, or, at least my approach. I want the music to to be supportive to the person's experience, um, and it it typically follows, you know, a natural kind of flow. Um, in the beginning, when the person's kind of waiting for the the medicine to come on the music's a bit more calm, um, encouraging some, you know, reflection and introspection. And then as the the medicine is really working its way into the person's system, you know, there's more of a a crescendo. And so the music might be a bit more evocative and creating some kind of dynamic tension in the experience to encourage the person to kind of go deeper and to, to open up. And then again, more towards the end of the session, you know, sort of, again, more quiet, introspective music um, to encourage, you know, kind of reflection and I think consolidation of of what has happened earlier in the day. Yeah, and you find that in, again, you know, traditional um, Indigenous medicine ceremonies where in the the height of the experience, the music is a a lot more (laughs) intense for anyone who's ever been there. So, yeah, the music is vitally important. I can't imagine, and I would highly discourage anyone from trying to do this work without music mm-hmm. <clears throat> and to, to give some thought to the music. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I find that once the session starts, the music is kind of sort of in the, the background. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think sometimes people can get a little kind of overly focused on creating the absolutely perfect playlists, And so I think you always need to be flexible in the session. And, you know, sometimes I find myself starting the music and not making any adjustments. And then in other sessions, you know, kind of making, you know, more adjustments depending on what's going on. And again, following the participant's lead and what's going on for them. We do tell participants as well that, you know, back to not being overly focused on the music. I think for some participants, if they're if they're experiencing some avoidance and unwillingness to kind of go into the, the trauma material, they can get overly focused on the music and being critical of the music. So we might encourage them, you know, if, if you're not liking a particular track, again, just try to stay with that. You know, it might be encouraging you to, to go somewhere that you don't think you want to go and just remember, you know, none of these songs last forever. They're, you know, I mean, the longest ones might be, say, 10 minutes, but yeah eventually the song will change and when the song changes your experience is likely to change so just try to stay with it and and follow it
0: sorry i'm waving my hand here you guys can see me have a fly that's i'm not (laughs) trying to get anybody's attention i'm just waving away a fly
1: (laughs) yeah you have a question
0: (laughs) Uh, wow that's so I, I wanted to ask, you know, make a comment. I wanted to draw a thread back to what you said earlier about the music, too, because um, you mentioned just now that, um, you know, how important music is. And you talked earlier about the importance of different uh, modes of knowing, different communities that have known um, and have learned things from psychedelic experience, you know, and, and this idea of music as medicine. I mean, to the medical community might sound pretty like that's a little, you know, like Music is medicine. That might be a stretch. But then, if we look, if we broaden our context outside of medicine, clearly this is a thing, right? Like, <laughs> look at music, you look at the music scene, look at the music scene plus psychedelics. Clearly, they're onto something here. And you talk about this sort of crescendo of a show, you know, I think because I'm a deadhead. So I think of like, yeah, the second set, they really get down, right? Like, it gets heavy, right? Right at the time when the person who happened to take a dose near the beginning of the show, right when they're peaking, that stuff's getting real, real deep. You know, and so like this is not I mean, this has been very thoroughly explored territory, just not at all in the context of medicine. And so I, I think that's fascinating how we have to broaden our context and broaden our lenses and not be so myopic sometimes. By, like, we're doing this as therapy. So what's therapy? We're reinventing the wheel. Well, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's a lot of other places that we can reach and draw a lot of wisdom from. And I, I also wanted to ask a question, just if you had any particular Favorites for uh, any particular favorite pieces of music for this? Um,
1: so, I'll talk, I guess I'll talk more about sort of genre and style. I like to bring in a lot of music with a more organic sound and world beat, global kind of music. There is kind of the, I guess, the advice to avoid music with. Either in, in our case, most often English lyrics, but in, to avoid music with lyrics and whatever the person's you know, dominant language is, because that can be distracting. And so, you know, I'll play a lot of, say, Middle Eastern music, Arabic music, um, music with Spanish lyrics, things like that. Um, not, not a lot of lyrics. I tend to, it's fewer tracks with lyrics, but occasionally I think that the sound of the human voice is also an important element. in in a person's journey so you know and there are certainly other therapists who lean more towards you know edm kind of you know psytrance you know more electronic sound and you know the all the early hopkins research was very much you know classical music which you know doesn't seem to resonate with you know younger generation of participants and aficionados if you will Although you know, I've kind of developed an appreciation for it because classical, you know, has a lot of those elements of you know really sweeping sounds and can really open up a lot of amazing internal spaces. And so, you know, just putting on headphones and listening to classical music alone again can really take you on a journey.
0: I listened once to this. This combines the classical and and the organic. It was. Um, I don't know if you ever listened to Alan Hovanis. Or prayer for Saint Gregory is a is a particular composition. It's a short one, but one time for a journey, I used uh, just a Alan Hovhaness sort of like I think it was on Spotify. And I just sort of played, and wonderful classical music with all of those big dramatic ups and downs. And then a song came on, and it was um, one in which he incorporated whale song, and I didn't know it was coming, but I'm listening to the music, and then all of a sudden there's a whale. And it blew my mind in the smithereens completely because it was like, there is like an intelligent language right there that I recognize as an intelligent language. Clearly this is speech, no idea what it's saying. And it's like, I didn't understand it all. It took me a long time to figure out like, this is whale, but it was an extremely interesting experience to have um, combining the, the, the classical, but then this really organic clearly sentient communication. It was really neat. So, I recommend Alan (laughs) Hobanis. I'm going to
1: ask you to remind me of that later. Yeah, I've often been fascinated by the the, the whale music, basically. Um, (laughs) As a quick aside, I read something recently, you know, during the height of kind of the COVID shutdown, when the oceans were much quieter, that some researchers um, were detecting new whale language that, that had never been heard before, and... Um, We're collecting, yeah, examples of, you know, a a lot more diversity and the way that whales communicate with one another than we've previously known because the oceans have been so noisy.
2: That's super cool. That's super neat. I love this discussion as music as medicine. And I I love what you said, Nate, about how here in this, this treatment, we're stepping outside of the normal box of therapy. I think that's one of the things that I um, really enjoy about this, this area of work is that it really is incorporating a lot of different disciplines like music, you know, art plays a big role in integration and and things like that. And I I imagine for some therapists that would also evoke some discomfort because we're very comfortable in our little boxes. I know what to do. I have my treatment plan. I have my, you know, my interventions. A lot of folks are very curious about this work. I, I was wondering if you could speak to You know, if people are thinking about getting involved, you know, what types of, uh, maybe we could broaden out not just therapists, but what types of individuals are best suited for this type of role? And I'm especially curious, too, about eight-hour dosing sessions. That must be pretty exhausting. Uh, I think it's an important factor for folks to consider doing this kind of work. Are they up for that kind of commitment? Uh, Just to speak a bit about your experience with that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's see where to begin there. Uh I'm gonna start with the eight hour sessions and then you may have to remind me of your, your other question. We'll, <laughs> we'll see if I can hold that all. Uh if, you know, I'll start with the participants. Actually, it's it's kind of funny, is that so many participants are like, wait, we're at the end? It's over. <laughs> you know, there is that um whether it's MDMA or, or other you know psychedelics time is distorted for people. And, you know, we're in a, the room's not dark, but you know, the shades are drawn because people's eyes are often much more sensitive to light because they're in times a person's pupils dilate when they take MDMA. So the room's a little darkened, you know, they're not paying attention to time. They're spending a lot of time in that internal state. So time flies, it seems for them, you know, and, and, for me personally, it hasn't been that challenging. There is often, you know, so much going on. Even when a person is spending, let's say, an hour goes by, and they've got the eye shades and headphones on, you know, I'm often still sitting there. You know, I mean, I'm not you know, staring at them, but watching, you know, kind of wondering what's what's going on for them, and and you know, noticing what's happening in their their face they're in their, in their body. And then, you know, when the eyeshades and headphones come off, there's a lot of often very dynamic interaction that is much different than the typical 15 minute psychotherapy session. So a lot of the time it's, it's very engaging. The great thing about having two therapists in the room is that you can take a break whenever you want. <laughs> and so there are times when I'll, you know, I'll take more frequent breaks and, you know, yeah, sometimes the work is intense and heavy. And so sometimes I'll even go outside and, you know, take a walk and get some air. And, you know, so the, the therapists are encouraged to relieve one another that way. I think in the beginning for many therapists, there's a sense of, Oh, I'm going to miss something. <laughs> and so not wanting to, to leave the room. Um, but I think it's important to, to step out of the room and to, to, to kind of you know shake it off and, and get some air and, Reground and reorient and, and go back in fresh and, and give the other therapist time to do that. And, and we also certainly take a lunch break during the, that eight hours. So I think for a person trying to do this work, you know, there's a lot of talk of, you know, how can we make this work, this therapy, financially more accessible and can one therapist do it? I think it'd be a lot for one therapist to do and eight hours certainly certainly can be done, and that's more typical for um, underground therapists who've been doing this work for a long time. But yeah, it's a long day. Mm-hmm. And like I said, now remind me of your other question.
2: <laughs> if you could just speak to maybe some of the determinations one could use in considering if this could be a career path for them.
1: Yeah, certainly. I'm getting I get a lot of requests from. You know, people in graduate training or thinking about a, a career choice, and who are interested in it. I'd say it's it isn't for everyone, and I'd say the most important thing, whether becoming a therapist or becoming a psychedelic therapist, is for a person to really encouraging a person to do their own work, mm-hmm. um, to really you know do the hard work. And particularly in in this type of work and working with trauma, because it is it can be a lot at times. And for people who are new to the field of, of therapy and maybe haven't had a lot of specific you know trauma training, that's something that can be overwhelming or, or triggering for a person. And so you know in the in the training literature, we talk about vicarious traumatization that can happen for people who are. Whether therapists or other kinds of frontline workers who are seeing her exposed to a lot of trauma. And so taking that into account, is that, is that something that a, a person can do or, or wants to do? So there, I think there, there are certainly going to be a lot more training opportunities you know, down the line. And as, as much as we need a you know, license, therapist with this sort of training and this sort of background, I think we also need a lot of, you know, lay people who have the experience and the training and whether that's through, you know, trip sitting or harm reduction training, you know, working with a Zendo, for example. And Bob Jesse has some, I think, really fascinating opinions and on the ways that this type of therapy can be made available to to more people and I think there's a fascinating question here about whether or not everyone absolutely needs a licensed therapist to do this work and um, for people who would benefit from this work with a well-trained you know trip sitter or guide and I think that that's again something that we really need to explore and and perhaps encourage and, you know, maybe there's a, I, I absolutely think there's an opportunity here for some type of, um, whether it's a certificate training program or whatever it might be, to, to train more people to, you know, to, to really get this out there. And I think there are lots of people who would benefit from this work who don't necessarily need, you know, a licensed therapist to do the work with. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for, you know, chaplains or, you know, pastoral counselors to to get on board with this. And we have examples of this. You know, people who work suicide hotlines are not always licensed people, and they're doing incredibly important work.
0: Yeah, it... it, uh this is, yeah, this, this conversation is so important because, you know, it it does get directly to the question of access. How many people can access this, have the opportunity to access this safely, legally, you know, and also uh, gatekeeping and um, you know, who uh, sort of gets to um, essentially control who gets access and why and for when. And these are really, really important questions. And when you're thinking um, as, as you were speaking, I was thinking of, You know, what responsibility does the person who is holding the container in whatever format that is and what responsibility do they have to the person that they're working with? And I think that that's probably different based on the context, right, based on is this are we treating somebody for PTSD um, versus are we, you know, working with someone for personal growth? You know, like what what are the basic responsibilities of the person who has um, agreed to be to hold that space for someone else?
1: And, you know, I, I am biased here. And I think that anyone working with trauma absolutely needs to have specific expert you know, level training and, and working with trauma. It's the, the possibility of further traumatizing a person is is too great to, I think, take that risk. But, yeah, for a person engaging in, you know, more sort of psycho-spiritual, you know, growth Exploration probably doesn't necessarily need a, a licensed person to to do that with, but I, again, I think the person should certainly have training and, and guidance and you know mentorship to do that work.
2: Yeah, it's such a you know common question that gets asked and, and should get asked. Uh, because this treatment is going to be really expensive for folks who who could benefit from it. And, you know, we're going to basically be repeating a lot of the same mistakes that traditional medicine has made in excluding certain communities and people of color and other marginalized identities. And uh, one of the things I know you talk a lot about, Gregory, and that There are a good number of people in psychedelic research who are involved in this movement who will talk about not wanting to or trying to do our best not to repeat the mistakes of the past in being, you know, uh, therapies are mostly a white space in general, right? And so how how do we make these treatments available? How do we make them accessible? It's such an important question. I'm curious, you know, when you talked about having different levels of experience, you know, what are, like, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, do you think that having somebody with, you know, like a Zendo training level of education, which is, you know, they, they're trained to sit with people who are having challenging experiences and they do a very good job at it with, with pretty minimal training, uh, maybe some oversight and supervision if something comes up. Um, what are, what are some potential models or, or solutions um, that, that you can see to this?
1: Yeah. And one idea that comes to mind is, you know, we can look at the kind of the apprenticeship model as a way to, to perhaps move this forward. And that they're, yeah, like to use the, the Zendo training example or, or harm reduction in general, yeah, the, the harm reduction training approaches. Yeah, to, to pair that person maybe with a licensed person and an apprenticeship role and to have some sort of a certification program, perhaps where people can can learn this and, mm-hmm. and then carry that work forward. And, you know, just as licensed professionals, you know, we're often taught to, to recognize the you know, our limitations and to certainly make sure that the people that are apprenticing and that we're, we're training we, we train them to recognize that as well I think it's also important that we figure out, and I, I don't have an answer to this, but to really get this work embedded in the communities that would benefit from it most mm-hmm. communities of color and indigenous communities and being able to Train people within those communities, but but essentially uh, turn it over to people in in those communities who who know their communities best. And maybe there need to be some adaptations to this current model to to make it more accessible, not only accessible, but more effective and to be more accepted in that community. Because right now, I like think in a lot of communities of color, it still feels like this white. You know sort of mm-hmm. of clinical treatment, and in some ways that's true you know and, and maps is doing some work to to train more therapists of color and bring more people in and there's certainly more that can be done there so i I'm absolutely confident that's going to, to continue and you know as the field of psychedelics is slowly diversifying more and we're getting more um, diverse voices and, and people are taking ownership of different pieces of it. So I think to go back to your earlier question, what the next five years are going to look like is going to be fascinating. I, you know, Having been involved for the last five years, I could have never predicted really that things would move as quickly as they have. And in particular, the kind of the social acceptance of these approaches and the number of headlines whether it's about psilocybin or mdma so i think it's going to be really fascinating to see what happens in the next five years
0: mm-hmm. yeah i think a lot of us are it's interesting a lot waiting for sort of the blowback yeah i haven't seen a ton right yeah and that's been a little surprising to me
1: hmm yeah I agree. I'm I'm thankful, and you know, now that we've had a change of administration, I'm a little less um, paranoid about it. <laughs> but you know, sure, it could happen at any time. Although, you know, this time around, we have a lot more, I think, evidence on our side, and I think another part of that is that there's been a a huge change in how much faith people put in to the purely pharmaceutical approach and you know we've had 30 plus years of let's say people just taking an antidepressant and people realizing themselves oh this doesn't really work or
0: these side effects are
1: intolerable there's got to be something else
0: And so kind of bring it back around to the, to the beginning of the conversation then. Right. It's like, well, we acknowledge that there's like a mental health crisis, but we also acknowledge that we don't have, we we don't have good tools for treating the mental health crisis. So there's maybe a little bit of desperation even like, okay, you know, maybe that would have seemed way out there 10 years ago, but now it's like, we got to do something. So I think maybe that's increased openness a bit too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, you hear more and more psychiatrists who Feel like, yeah, the, the tools that they've been given are often ineffective or minimally effective at best. Oh. And more psychiatrists who are realizing like the most effective tool, psychotherapy, was taken away from them in their their training programs. And so more and more are seeking that.
2: So speaking of headlines with within I think it was a couple of weeks ago just very recently maps uh, you know released their phase 3 data showing that 67% of participants in the phase 3 trials no longer met criteria for PTSD which is absolutely incredible. Yeah. I mean that's that's just a remarkable number. You must have been so excited to see those results having you know spent so much time working in these trials.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, we, it, it, it replicates what we'd seen in phase two, but phase three is a very different, you know, it's a very different study and it's where the majority of pharmaceutical research studies fail. Um, they, they fail to replicate you know, earlier findings. And so, yeah, we were a little bit on the edge of our seats, you know, wondering what it was going to look like. And so to have the data come out so robust was, was very exciting, is very exciting. And so, you know, we're, we're now excited to be moving forward with the, the second part of phase three, where we hope to repeat the same thing again. You know, the other thing that I think is, well, one, I think many people who don't follow pharmaceutical research might not realize exactly how phenomenal that number is, uh, that, you know, you just don't see that in pharmaceutical research. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it's often more like you, you hope to maybe get, you know, 30% to show that it, your treatment's effective. The other, you know, I think interesting thing about that is that I think 32% of the people in the placebo arm of the study also had statistically significant improvements in their PTSD, um, which again, rather than, yeah, I think it really speaks to the, the power of the therapy itself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all of those people got the same number of therapy hours. And, you know, our goal in the study is to have everybody experience the exact same thing across the study with MDMA being the only variable. So, you know, again, speaks to the power of of psychotherapy and and intensive psychotherapy in particular to to produce um, measurable results.
0: That just comes dangerously close to confirming all of my priors about things like yes therapy works great but it doesn't work nearly as well as therapy plus this <laughs> this other treatment like what is exactly yeah so i'm like wow that's that's some
1: right, we we've heard, there. Antidepressants, right we've always heard that and we've always been told that and you know patients are told that but there's never been this sort of you know and bringing prozac to market You know, and one's looking at prozac plus therapy but yeah
2: so yeah there's been no innovation in mental health treatment that's come close to this and as a therapist i'm very willing to admit the limitations of what therapy can provide and and, you know i'm very open with clients about that you know i think as a therapist we hear a lot of stories about people who are frustrated with medications frustrated with therapy and you know i live in oregon where psilocybin-assisted uh, treatment is going to be available soon. People are really excited for that because they they really want an alternative. And again, to have this data show that this really does work significantly better than some of our existing treatments, it's hard to argue with that, even for folks who are you know, more conservative or traditional or close-minded or whatever, however you want to describe that, it's hard to argue with with the data. And I think that's one thing that one of many things I have such great respect and appreciation to Maps for, for for really doing this right, doing this rigorously, doing this to the utmost quality. It's really quite remarkable the the multi decade project that Rick Doblin and that whole organization, many staff members and therapists like yourself, Gregory, have worked so hard to really maintain this quality. And now you know we have this wonderful data to show it's 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 really such a comeback story that is is really quite remarkable
1: yeah yeah thanks brian I, i'm incredibly absolutely grateful to to rick doblin and the team at maps who've you know kept this moving for so many years and um, to have been a part of this now for a number of years is, is really yeah just deep gratitude for this experience it's, mm-hmm. it's been a lot of work but it's, it's mm-hmm. certainly paying off, and you know I think the other thing that's so groundbreaking about this approach or these approaches, MDMA or psilocybin, is we're talking about the very few number of drug exposures or, or use of the medicine. And the case of MDMA, it's three sessions as opposed to taking a pill every day for the rest of your life. And you know these are, yeah, you know, fairly small doses of of the medicine. And to get these kinds of results is just, again, groundbreaking in, in, in psychiatry.
0: So speaking of the the you know maps and uh, just the state of where the research are, I wonder if you wouldn't mind taking a minute to orient our listeners to exactly where things are. Like, you know, uh, I think casual listener might not know phase one, phase two, phase three. What does that mean? How many phases? Like, you know, how many trials are left and just just like a brief orientation of what that means and what that lends us to be able to expect as practitioners um, as far as like the, the legal status over the next few years.
1: Yeah, so every um, new drug that's in development goes through several phases, phase one, phase two, phase three. Earlier phases are looking at, you know, often um, animal models. It's a lot of lab work. Um, basically. And then in phase two, you start to get to human trials and looking at safety and efficacy. And then phase three is the final phase of, of drug development before a drug can make it to market, before it gets the, the final FDA approval to, to go to market. And like I said earlier, phase three is where a lot of drugs fail. They just don't, don't prove to be effective. And pharmaceutical companies can spend millions, even billions of dollars getting to that point, and to then have the drug fail. And sadly, that's often reflected in, in the cost of drugs, particularly here in the United States. So what your listeners should also you know, remember is that MAPS has raised every single dollar of this from, from private donations. So this has been a private donation funded research and it's cost you know, millions and millions of dollars to get this far. So it's not a big pharmaceutical industry who's been developing this drug. So it has been quite a sometimes a scrappy team of of people getting it this far. So we're right now we're about halfway through phase three. We're hoping to have it all completed by early 2023. So once once all the participants get through the study. Then there's also a long period of data analysis, you know, cleaning up the data, analyzing the data, getting it published, submitting things to the FDA, going through lots of FDA meetings to finally get that you know stamp of approval that we're all hoping for. It's still certainly no guarantee, but things look incredibly good. Uh, there's no reason to think that, that we won't get there. So it's possible that by 2023 um, MDMA could be available to the public. Before then, the expanded access program is starting. It's a small number of clinics, um, but there will be people who will have access to MDMA-assisted therapy who don't have to be enrolled in the clinical research trial. And that's because of the the breakthrough therapy designation that MDMA was given by by the FDA. Um, It's been a couple of years ago now. Um, to, to make this available. And, and that's true when there's um, an investigational new drug that shows you know, sort of breakthrough uh, promise where there's not been any effective treatment. And certainly in the case of PTSD, I think any clinician would agree we really don't have an effective treatment for that.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's like so soon. <laughs> I think mean, 2023, it's like, wow. Um, and that is... Obviously, these phase three studies are all honed in on PTSD, so it would show efficacy for PTSD, so then it would be approved for the treatment of that. You know, However, once it's approved by the FDA, it could be prescribed and used off-label, like any other drug can be used off-label, um, which would open it up to be used for other conditions, even though there isn't currently an evidence base for that, but I'm sure that that will happen. Uh, yeah, and I don't know. I'm curious what that would
1: maybe look like. yeah. You know, and for a typical drug that comes to market, absolutely. You know, almost as soon as it hits the market, it's being used off-label for non-indicated uses. With MDMA, I don't know, and I can't speak to this because you know, I don't work at Maps for Maps. Um, but I do know that you know, Maps is going to hold, you know, an exclusive. The the plan is that Maps will hold an exclusive patent on the drug for five years. And MAPS will basically have some control over who who gets the drug. Mm. So, you know, I think people, my understanding is that people will have to either have gone through the MAPS training program or through an approved kind of affiliated program, whether it's the program at CIS or, or something like that, in order to apply to use MDMA. So I, and I don't know for certain if MAPS is going to require that it's only used for PTSD in those, you know, the first years that it comes to market. Or I know MAPS is going to be engaging in additional research to see what other indications, like I mentioned, depression earlier, and there's some couples therapy work going on. So I don't know if it's going to be available for clinicians to use off label or not.
0: Mm-hmm. So MAPS will have a, have a great deal for the first five years, a great deal of control. After that, it becomes a, a public patent. Is that right? Yeah, and, and
1: I want to emphasize too, because I think MAPS has gotten some criticism for this. Well, why? You know, this, again, being sort of this gatekeeper and who has access and all of that. And that, as I mentioned earlier, it is incredibly expensive, mind-blowingly expensive to do pharmaceutical research. And so to get another indication to MDMA, is kind, you know, kind of like starting over in the pharmaceutical research process. And so MAPS is, again, then faced with raising tens of millions of dollars to get that through. And so what that will allow by, by holding that patent for five years, and because MAPS has set up this public benefit corporation, it allows MAPS to then make money off the drug and put it back into to research for the public good. So we can, you know, find out what else is it effective for. So I think it's, I think it's important. You know, Maps is trying to do this. I think in a way that's much more ethical than your typical pharmaceutical company. It's not. It's not purely profit driven. It's not to pay stockholders. It really is, you know, for the public good. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if it if it all works out that way, as you said, yes, Maps has a you know, kind of a, a sweet deal there, um, and then at the end of the five years, and when that expires, yeah, then there's no patent on MDMA. I guess it would be treated like any other generic drug, and companies could manufacture it and use it in whatever way they see fit. It'll be interesting, though. I mean, the whole field of psychedelics is going to change radically, I think, in five years, just as You know, there's no, you can't patent psilocybin per se, and we won't go into it because we know there are companies trying to patent particular types of psilocybin or or ways that they manufacture psilocybin, which is different. But yeah, so how is that going to be sort of controlled by by the FDA? Potentially everyone in the world has access to mushrooms if they want them. They're not that hard to cultivate Mm -hmm. or, or forage. So, you know, that... I mean, it's going to be interesting again to see how this this plays out in oregon you know that that cat's already out of the bag so to speak mm-hmm. so um, how do you how do you can how do you control that crashing wave
2: mm-hmm. yeah it's a big experiment that's yeah. happening in oregon you know I, it, correct me if i if i say anything that's incorrect here gregory but you know being just starting the maps training now it's clear how they have scaffolded up their training program to to try to get as many folks trained up as possible when MDMA therapy becomes available. So our cohort has 305 people. It's the largest cohort so far, and it's all online. And because of that, the cost is, I mean, it's still very costly, but I think the cost is uh, about half of what it was. So I think they're, again, trying to make this more accessible for people to get this training. They also talked about having a two-year um, licensure renewal—you will need to be supervised. You'll need to get continuing education credits in MDMA treatment in order to maintain that that licensure, which sounds really great to me. Um, so, for, for our listeners out there, you don't you don't ne- now you don't need to be necessarily associated with a clinical trial to get MAPS training the way you were in the early stages of it. And again, you may not be able to use the training for a couple of years, but it seems like what MAPS is aiming for is to try to get as many people ready to go so that when it does become available, people will have as, as you know, the most number of people will have access to it as possible.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, to realize I think the, the, the full potential of this this approach, this treatment, we literally need an army of <laughs> therapists trained to roll it out once it's available, and so wow, that's a, a huge cohort. Yeah, it was, my cohort was pretty tiny; we all fit in one room together. <laughs> um, and I think that's been a, a hard thing, as you mentioned, for some therapists, is to get this training and then you're just sitting and waiting. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, you know, there's still going to be a wait.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But yes, we want to encourage anyone who's listening, who's interested, yeah, you know, to explore that that training. Because we, so as I said, we, we need an army, and we need a, a diverse army. Mm-hmm. So MAPS does have some scholarship programs for therapists of color and, and specific trainings for therapists of color to, to get this to the communities who, who need it most.
0: And if I'm correct, MAPS is in this training, they're only training licensed or license eligible therapists, correct? Yes, I believe
1: that you have to at least be licensed, eligible. or in you know. So yes, graduate students can apply and, and so forth, but yeah, people have
0: to. But it's for psychotherapists who are or will be state-licensed psychotherapists.
1: Correct. And I think that there's some, I don't know where this stands, but there has been some talk about as this continues to be done by therapy teams that not both people would have to be licensed. So... Mm-hmm you know there i think there cuz there are plenty of well trained clinicians who for whatever reason choose to not go through the hell of licensure mm-hmm. so yeah these people should certainly be able to to work on these therapy teams um, but at least my understanding is at least one member of the therapy team will need to be licensed mm-hmm. so you know to our earlier conversation and and thinking about apprenticeship sort of models i think it's a great way to to make this therapy potentially more financially accessible for people is, you know, if you have a, a licensed therapist and, and a lay person, so to speak, on the, the team who's doing it to sort of apprentice and and learn in a, in a mentor, mentee role, be a way to reduce the costs.
0: Also strikes me that, you know, that, that if you do have at least one licensed person, you know, and you have that degree of expertise, you know, like it seems to be important to have the redundancy for all the reasons that you say, being able to take a break, you know, just having two people accountable there at the same time. But, you know, that might be more redundancy than would be required to have two licensed people. So that might be a way to really increase access because, you know, that's obviously a much more rigorous process to be licensed than not. Right.
1: Right. And I hope that You know, in the the coming years, we're going to see, I mean, we're we're starting to see, you know, psychedelic medicine departments embedded in academic institutions. Mm. And so as we're having those training programs, you know, it's going to hopefully create more opportunity for people to get trained as part of their graduate training and, you know, hopefully start seeing psychedelic medicine therapy offered. And say, you know, sort of graduate school, you know, labs or clinics where people in the community, you know, that's often who access the services through those sorts of community-based clinics. So, so hopefully we'll be seeing that in the, the coming years as well.
0: Yeah, Because MAPS, right now, they offer their own training program. But it sounds like they are willing to recognize other training programs that might meet their certain specifications. So, And I wonder if there are other training programs that MAPS recognizes. At the moment,
1: yeah, the one at uh, CIS or California Institute of Integral Studies is the only one that I'm aware of at the moment, mm-hmm. um, where there is that sort of that partnership. Hopefully, there will be more.
2: Well, Gregory, we, we've it's been great to have you with us today. We've talked mostly about MDMA, but you do wear another hat. You are very much involved in ketamine treatment. Uh, maybe we can have you back sometime to talk more about that. But would you yeah. maybe just love to give our listeners a bit of a, a synopsis of your work in that area and, and talk a little bit about your center? Yes,
1: yeah, so I was drawn to the, the ketamine work after getting involved in the MDMA work. And realizing how long it was going to be before MDMA was legally available, and with ketamine offering some, you know, a unique approach, an alternative approach to traditional psychotherapy, and allowing people to to legally access and work with non ordinary states of consciousness. So, and the work with ketamine has been very fascinating. And so, about three or four years ago, yeah. Co-founded a, a clinic in San Francisco called Polaris Insight Center with many of my, my MAPS colleagues. And so, yeah, the, the work with ketamine. Ketamine is another fascinating molecule. I'm happy to come back and, and talk about that sometime. And for our
2: list, or Go ahead. I was going to say for our listeners who, you know, one thing I get asked a lot is like, there's so many new training programs popping up every day, which would, you know, what are the good ones? What, which one should I consider? Um, I want to vouch for Polaris being very good training. I've known several folks to go through their, their ketamine training and felt that it was really, really good quality and very helpful in, in their, their work with, Kind of mean that they're that they're able to really apply it now. So, if our listeners are are looking for that type of training, I'd encourage them to uh, encourage you to look into Polaris uh, for the. You guys have all different kinds of uh, things, from shorter workshops to longer, extensive courses, right?
1: Yeah, there are four modules, and um, yeah, I have to give kudos to my colleagues at, at Polaris who who run the the therapy. Training program there, and to say it, it's all very much based on the the MAPS MDMA manual that treatment approach. So, yeah, I think you know people do get a lot of uh, intensive preparation and orientation to this somewhat unique approach and the inner healing intelligence, this sort of you know um, participant or client directed approach to therapy and to working with non ordinary states of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Brian.
2: Sure. Well, thanks again, Gregory. It was great to speak with you. Fascinating discussion and we hope to have you back and continue to follow the developments of this exciting new field.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Nate. Wonderful to be with you today and uh, look forward to coming back anytime in the future. Thanks. Great. Thanks.